I didn't introduce myself, I'm Matt. I'm really glad we get to be together this morning, uh, both in worship as well as an opportunity for now to open the word that we just read about that's supposed to, that cuts, it pierces deeply into the heart uh, to bring about the opening that God desires so that we become different people, people transformed by the gospel into people who look like Jesus. That's what we're, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here to, to let God do to us and to open ourselves up to let him do so. Um, so um, we are in a series uh, that's a catechism series, um, which the word alone is super exciting. It makes people go, yes, catechism. So it's okay. You can just keep down. Keep it down, guys. Um, but it's basically a series that's leading us through the foundations, the fundamentals of our faith. And as we read a little bit earlier, uh, last week we, we dealt with one particular, two particular questions. This week we come to question number 23. Uh, so I'm going to read the question. You guys read the answer, um, and then we'll step in. Uh, why must the Redeemer be? Be truly God. This morning's scriptures um, start in, for, in uh, John chapter 1, go to Colossians 1, and then also Colossians 2. So hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Colossians 1. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. One of the things that... Um, was true for me and when kind of as I started going to seminary was that I had predominantly experienced God in worship through um, what I'll call like the songs that make you move, you know, the songs that are either super melancholy that like draw your heart down and the melody leads you there or, or potentially some of the really up songs, some of the like praiseworthy songs that make you jump up and down and super excited about the fact that, man, could it be true that this is God? But one of the things that had never happened to me or that had been really, I would say, almost like no experience whatsoever was to worship God theologically, to, to think of God rightly in my heart and mind and to allow those thoughts as I worship God to be the thing that led me to his throne, that led me to his heart, that led me to, to tears or to celebration. 
And um, I think that's probably common for us all. It's more rare to actually be thinking about God rightly and, and so be drawn and led towards him. We, we typically need a little bit of help, which is why music is particularly helpful and lyrics that reflect the scriptures are, are deeply helpful. Well, last week we, we looked significantly at, um, at how was it important for, for God, the son, to be a man in the story and the journey of redemption. Steve did a great job of articulating the significance of that and what the implications are for us. Uh, so last week we looked at God the Son being a man. And this week we're going to look at God becoming a man. God becoming a man. Jesus is God. There is probably not a more significant or fundamental truth in the Christian faith than that statement right there. It is the statement, it is the principle, it is the doctrine that actually separates Christianity from basically every other faith. It's, it's the great dividing line if you talk to a Muslim or, or to, to a Jewish friend. And now many will say, hey, listen, Jesus was, was clearly, it was a good man. He was a, he was a great teacher or, or you know, he was, a, he was a rabbi. Muslims believe that he was a great prophet. But, but God? No. No, no, that, that, that's not an option. He, he, was, he was just a man, a good man, but, but, but just a man. But it is essential. I would say it is one of the most essential elements of our faith that we take for granted and don't think about a ton, but has implications for how we hold on to our faith beyond, beyond any other. If we're not anchored to this certainty, then we find ourselves floating away amidst all of life's challenges, sorrows, and opportunities. I bet if I pulled you guys in the room and said, okay, so um, do you believe that Jesus is God? I suspect most of you, you know, church-going folk would be like, yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that we all agree to, right? High five, Jesus is God. But if I said, how do you know? Like, how do you know that Jesus is God? Are you sure? Like, how, how do you know? Well, the answer may not be quite as clear. So, so how do we know that Jesus is God? Well, there are great books out there, great resources that are going to be able to go into far more depth than I will be able to do in this short amount of time. But, but one of the significant, and so you've got uh, Josh McDowell's uh, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or the little version of it, which is uh, more than a carpenter, uh, so depending on your reading styles. Uh, you've got uh, Keller's Reason for God. Keller what? Um, and then uh, you've got Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, which is also in the theaters. Thank you, sir. That's also in the theaters right now. Lee Strobel's, uh, I didn't actually even realize that until this week. Uh, but there's a, a movie called The Case for Christ that's Lee Strobel's journey of coming to, um, to Christ that's in theaters now. So uh, those are some resources to be able to kind of go to the next level of your thinking, understanding. But how do we know that Jesus is God? Well, first of all, the people that were around him said that he was. They talked about him as though he was. We just read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is as clear of a declaration about Jesus as is made in the Scriptures, especially from some of one of his disciples, one that lived and walked with him. But then in the narrative, we have, we have uh, Thomas, one of his other disciples, after Jesus is risen, finding himself standing before the risen Lord, looking at his side and his hands, falling on his knees and saying, my Lord and my God. And two things happen there. You have a Jew who would never think that God could be a man, ever, would never, ever think that. And two, you have someone who is standing in front of the Lord saying these things, and you have Jesus saying nothing. 
receiving the praise that belongs only to God. That is high blasphemy for the Jew. You don't claim to be God. Jesus doesn't correct him. He lets him worship him. He lets him worship him. So people have said it about him that he is God, but also he says it about himself. We find ourselves in John chapter 8. Jesus is talking uh, in the temple to some of the Pharisees, and he says to them, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Also, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why are they throwing stones at him? Why are they picking up stones to kill him? Because he's claiming to be God. Before Abraham was, I thought of Abraham. Well, that's not, that's not blasphemy. That's not a problem. Before Abraham, before Abraham was, I am, ego ami, the declaration, I am the Lord that God gave to Moses in Exodus. I am, calls himself God. He stands before the Sanhedrin and, and the, uh, as he's being, as he's being uh, carted in for crucifixion and, and the leadership group there, the, the high priest looks at Jesus and says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And says that Jesus says, you have said so, or it is as you have said. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The addition that Jesus makes there, he says, yeah, it is as you say. And on top of that, you're going to see the man coming in the same way that Daniel chapter 7 describes the coming of the Son of Man. Oh, in the same way that Psalm 110 talks about the Messiah coming. He's saying, yeah, I'm he. It's me. And it's even more than you realize. Jesus is the one who says, your sins are forgiven. Go. And everyone around him says, uh, excuse me. Uh, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus doesn't go, my bad. I, you know, I was out of line there. I didn't realize I, I, I took, took the wrong job. Apologize. No. He goes, oh, just so that you know that I have the power to forgive sins, I can make this guy stand up. Why don't you stand up and go ahead and walk? And the man stands and walks. Jesus is causing everyone around him to have to go like, this, I think this guy's saying he's God. He's saying he's Messiah. That seems to be very, very clean, but he's saying he's God. Is Messiah God? He says it about himself. But of course, then scripture gives a ton of, ascribes to Jesus the attributes of God. Whether it's in the actual narratives of the scripture where he's calming storms or raising people from the dead or, um, or healing the sick. He, he's all-knowing. He, he finds himself, which is an attribute of God, he finds himself talking to a Samaritan woman he's never met. And he tells her her whole, whole story. And she says, I met a man who told me my whole story. It's like he knew everything about me. He knows the past, but he knows the future. He finds himself talking to Peter saying, hey, just so you know, in the next 24 hours, you're going to denounce me, reject me. Oh, hey, in, in a few years, the temple's going to be destroyed, and it, and it is. Hey, just so you know, we're heading towards Jerusalem, and they're going to crucify me. But I'm going to be raised in three days. It also says that in the present, he knows the thoughts of men, the thoughts and intentions of men. He also is creator and sustainer. We just read some in, first, in Colossians chapter 1 that all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
And what this points to is the fact that from the early church, there was never a time in the first 300 or so years of the church's beginning where anyone was going like, I wonder if Jesus is God. From the early disciples, the ones who spent all their time with him and their life with him for the past three years, who then saw him raised, and the hundreds and thousands that came to know him afterwards, none of them were going like, whoa, 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 Paul, what are you writing about this like Jesus is God thing? That's not true. That's not what he said. That's not what he communicated to us. They were willing to go and die for it. It was a declaration with their lives that indeed he is God, Jesus, the Son of God, equal, co-equal with God. So there's really no controversy, no pushback for about 300 or so years in the church about whether or not Jesus is God in any way, shape, or form. It's, it is how it is. Everyone who knows and belongs to Christ is one who says, who acknowledges that Jesus is God. Which is some of the reason why uh, C.S. Lewis is able to encapsulate some of these thoughts and makes a compelling argument, which, like no one else can, C.S. Lewis does. His famous liar, lunatic, and lord um, declaration uh, looks like this. He says, uh, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up with a fool for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on your, at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he is neither lunatic nor a fiend, a liar. And consequently... However strange, however horrifying, or unlikely it may seem, I have accepted the view that he was and is God. That's the logical construct that C.S. Lewis came to as he investigated Christianity and came face to face with Jesus as he says he was and is. I've been fin just finished a book called uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Uh, it's a great book about a, a young man who grew up in Islam and found himself wrestling with the Jesus of the Bible uh, through relationships with some friends. It's been a, it was a fascinating read. It's one of the great uh, story apologetics kind of, kind of books. So if you have a chance to read it, it's really great. Or you can get it on Audible because he reads it. Um, but one of the things in it that I thought was fascinating is he is well-trained as a young, uh, young Muslim boy on how to counter Christianity. And so he tells of these different instances when he's in, in classrooms in middle school or, or in high school. And, and the, the, the Christian kids are going like, hey, so, I mean, how come you don't believe that Jesus is God? And, and then he just comes back with argument after argument after argument. And they just like dismantle. Like they literally just crumble in front of him. And he's like, see, I got gotcha. you. You don't, have, you don't understand your own God, your own theology, your own understanding. You can't even hold to it firmly. What was fascinating about that is that it ra he raised several different questions, especially with this one particular girl who was a middle schooler. And he said, listen, I, I understand. Like, Jesus claims that, that he doesn't know when, the return, when his return is going to be. I mean, how can you be God and not know when your return is? 
I mean, clearly, if he was God, he would know all things. And so, so what gives? He must not be God. He must be like less than that. He must just be a man that God revealed. See, boom, lawyered, or maybe theologized. But she crumbles. She's like, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do with that. I'm not sure what to do. So one of the things I want to do this morning is spend a little time talking about how can God, how can Jesus be both God and man? We looked significantly last week at the reality of what Jesus brings as man to us. How can, how can Jesus be both God and man? You ever have those moments where you're wondering, you're trying to figure it out? Well, there are five fundamental truths that came out of a particular council in 451 called the Council of Chalcedon. They were wrestling with the, with the Jesus question. People were coming with different heresies, and they, they did an incredible job of articulating what would basically be like, this is Jesus, the person of Christ that we still hold to today. 451, and it remains today for all Orthodox Christianity, the understanding, the true understanding of Christ. Well, five fundamental uh, pillars or, or truths, or I'll call them building blocks, were built from that, from that council. And we're, we're going to walk through the five and build on each one of them, and then we'll be through. First is that Jesus had, has two natures. Jesus has two natures. He is God and man. Now, with the help of uh, Matt Perriman, who is a good author, I'm going to synthesize in just a couple minutes um, the Trinity. If you're paying attention, I just said in two minutes I'm going to synthesize the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity states that God is one being, and this one God exists in three distinct persons. This truth means that there are three distinct persons in the Trinity that are each one not like the other. So God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Father or God the Spirit. God the Spirit is neither God the Father nor God the Son. They are distinct. They are each distinct centers of consciousness, distinct forms of personal existence. And yet, they all share the same exact divine essence and nature. Thus, the three are one. This is what we learned when we did catechism question number three. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So there's three persons, and then they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Three, one, Trinity. That's what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. I'm not saying you have to get your heart around it, your mind around it, but it is significant. We talked about it in the past when we dealt with, with this particular question. But, but which, and this is now why this matters, is that which person in the Trinity incarnated as Jesus Christ? Was it all three? Was it just one? Well, the scriptures are pretty clear that only God the Son became incarnate. Neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit took on Jesus. So Jesus is God, but he is not the Father and he is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son. So that's a foundational. Now, it stands to reason that if Jesus is God, well, then he's always been God. Because if he hasn't always been God, well, then he ceased at some point being God because God is eternal. So God is, Jesus has always been God, but Jesus has not always been man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? 
the, the unforeseen, inimaginable, incredible reality that God chose to become man 2,000 years ago, that he took on man, becoming man. God the Son became a man. But what exactly does it say? What is it, I'm sorry, what exactly does it mean to say that God the Son became a man? Well, it certainly can't mean that he turned into a man, because that would mean that he, he was no longer God. He stopped being God and, and somehow became a man. So it can't be that. Because Jesus did not give up any of his divinity when he, when he became incarnate. We saw this in the earlier verses, and this is how one of the early theologians said it. He said, remaining what he, remaining what he was, wrap your hands around, heads around this, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So the summary is, Jesus has two natures. He is God. He has a divine nature. And he is man. He has a human nature. Building block number one. Building block number two. Each nature is full and complete. Each of Jesus' nature full, is God and man is fully God and fully man. Another way of saying that is that he's 100% God and 100% man. Now, I bet if I was able to enter the recesses of your mind and imagination, and, and I tried to pull up onto the screen what you actually think about when you think about Jesus, I suspect that many of us would find ourselves actually realizing that we either have Jesus as a man with a little bit of God thrown in, or we have Jesus as God with a little bit of man thrown in. I don't know what the percentages are. Maybe, maybe it's a 90-75 kind of thing. But, but, but there's, there's just these gaps where we go like, well, I mean, probably not that, though. But that reality of what we think about when we think about the Christ, when we think about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is, is so significant. Because each, each nature in Christ is full and complete. He's fully God. Jesus was fully God when he became incarnate, which means that everything that is essential for him being God is present in Christ. There is nothing about Christ, there's nothing about the essence of being God that is not present in Christ. There's nothing about the essence of being God that is not present in Christ, which is why that the Colossians 2 passage I read that says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's, it's the pleroma word. It's, the, it's all of it. Like the totality of totality dwells, of deity dwells bodily in him. It is pivotal. It is pivotal. It's actually one of the great heresies of the early days that we understand that Jesus did not dump some deity, leave it behind at the door a little bit. He didn't uh, put some aside in storage so he could come back and pick it up later. No, no. Like he was fully God all the time. But he was also fully man. One of the other early understandings was maybe, well, maybe, maybe Jesus was just the body. He's like the vessel, you know, kind of like in, um, shoot, I didn't have it in my notes, the, the Will Smith movie where the, the guy comes in, becomes, okay, don't worry about it. He puts on the skin. Do you know what I'm talking about? Men in black. There we go. I'm just going to flash at you guys real quick, and then we'll get back and I'll do it better. Does that work? Um, 
It's not like that. It's not like you suck out the insides and you put in divinity inside this, this flesh. It's not like he's just a body, but, but the mind and the, and the soul, well, those were actually divine. No, he was fully man. He was man like you and I are man and woman. He was fully human. Everything that it means to be human, he was. Steve stated last week, and this is really what really significant. I mean, it was probably the, the climax of the, of, the, um, of, the, of the sermon for me when he said that at the right hand of the Father, there is a man. For all time and forever, Jesus will be fully God and fully man. That was his commitment to us. So, it's not just that Jesus has two natures, which is nature of divine nature and a human nature, but he also, they are complete natures, 100% God and 100% man. Building block number three. Each nature remains distinct. Each nature remains distinct. Jesus has a human will and a divine will, a human center of consciousness and a divine center of consciousness. The truth that Jesus has two nature is, is probably not brand new information to you. Right? I mean, if you've been in Sunday school at all, you're like, okay, oh, yeah, God, Jesus was, was God and, and he's man. And, and you probably just haven't done a ton of work trying to figure out how those actually reconcile to one another or how you live with the real tension of what they are. But what's really important to understand is that his two natures are, are distinct. We're getting more and more challenging here. It's okay. It's going to get better or harder either way. But those two natures are distinct. So there's this divine nature in Christ and there's a human nature in Christ, but they remain distinct. They don't, they're not like an apple and, and, a, and a banana in a blender and you blend them up and they're not an apple or a banana anymore. They become this other thing, this, this third thing that's, that's neither this nor this. It's something else. That's, that's, not, that's not the reality of Christ. It's not a blended version of the two that have been mixed together because if that was the case, see, they would no longer be fully human or fully God anymore. It would be something else. And if he was something else, then he would no longer be able to exist as he is. One of the other unbiblical views is, is that, the, um, that the, two, the two natures are, are not distinct from one another. They, they, start, they start encroaching on one another. They start affecting the other. Jesus' human nature is human only. His divine nature is, is divine only. Jesus didn't become a little bit divine in his, in his human nature. His, his divine nature didn't become a little bit human. They remain distinct in who they are. Jesus' human nature didn't become all-knowing. He had to learn. It says that he grew in knowledge. But his divine nature knows all things and never had to learn anything. He never became ignorant. So, building blocks. Jesus has two natures. Divine nature, human nature. They are full and complete natures. They are also separate from one another. They are distinct natures. And fourth, and now it gets fun, Christ is only one person. Christ is only one person. Let me try to put it simply. <laughs> there is a certain sense in which Christ is two. 
And there is also a sense in which Christ is one. That's as simple as it gets. There is a sense in which he's two, and there is a sense in which he's one. He is two in that he has two real, complete, and full natures. And yet he is one in that he is one thing. Those two natures connect to one another and belong together in a way that is one person, one thing. It's why in John 1 it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's that the word, the, the word that was with God in the beginning, that was God, it, it became, became flesh. Divine became mortal, became human nature. They, they began to blend, but they became one. They didn't join and connect to one another. They became one person. Jesus does not have a multiple personality disorder. And one of the ways you know that is that throughout all the scriptures, there's no sense, especially in the gospels, there is no sense at any time where Jesus talks like, well, we think we should do this. Let us, me and you and my inside person, let's us cross. No, it's like, he's always I. I mean, he talks about I and the father are one, but he's always talking in the first person. None of his disciples are confused about whether or not there's multiple dynamics going on in Jesus. It is one person in Christ. The relationship they have is with one, one thing, one person, one essence. Which is why it's so confusing to be in a relationship with Jesus when you're a disciple. Because the things he does don't make a lot of sense when you're trying to put them in a box. And the fifth, and maybe the implication of all the others, is that things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. Now this is where it's really important. Because probably at this point, and this has probably been true for most of your life, as you've wrestled with trying to understand how much of Jesus is God and how much of Jesus is man. And again, there's an incredible mystery here, by the way. Okay, so it's not like how do we interpret this until we can get it into a nice little box. There, we, we're going to hit the bounds of this in just a second. But one of the things that's really significant is what I just said, that what is true of only one nature is nonetheless true of the person of Christ The fact that Christ has two distinct natures means that there are things that are true of his human nature that are not true of his divine nature. Do you get that? The fact that he has two natures means that there's things that are true about his divine nature that are not true about his human nature. And conversely, there are things about his human nature that are not true about his divine nature. I know, you think you're in philosophy class again. It's really significant, though. Remember, we didn't blend them together into this, like, this isn't, a, this isn't a Jesus smoothie. It's two distinct natures. And there are things that are true about the one that are not true about the other. And this is why this really matters. Jesus hungers. Now, only Jesus' human nature can hunger. Jesus' divine nature can't hunger. He's not hungry. He's not tired. He's not thirsty. But, but the scripture says that Jesus hungered. And so because it was true of one of, because it was true of his human nature, it was true of Jesus. It was true of the Christ. It was true because it was true of one of his natures. What this simply saying is that when Jesus acts, he acts at times out of a divine nature. 
but it's Jesus who acts. And there are times where you experience Jesus as primarily acting out of his human nature, and it is Jesus who acts. It's one of the reasons why Jesus can stand in front of those Pharisees and say, before Abraham was, I am. The Pharisees are right. You're like, you're not even 50 years old, dude. How is this possible? You can't possibly know Abraham. Well, in his human nature, Jesus is not thousands of years old, but in his divine nature, he is. And so he is telling the truth. He is speaking about himself rightly, truly. Jesus finds himself asleep on the boat and a storm is raging. His human nature is sleeping. Scripture says God does not sleep or slumber. And then he wakes up because his disciples are terrified. And what does he do? He calms the storm. Human nature cannot calm a storm. But Jesus calmed the storm. Now, the scripture doesn't say the human nature of Jesus was really tired and sleeping on a pillow. And the disciples woke him up and his divine nature awoken and awoken, awoke and it calmed the storm. You see, it's, it's united together in one. And there's a real tension there. It's one of the great reasons why you can answer the question, how did Jesus not know? Why does he say only, I don't know. Uh, I don't, uh, the angels in heaven don't know the return, the date of the return of the son. Uh, neither does the son, but only the father. How is that possible? Well, actually, it makes all the sense in the world. In a very real sense, Jesus in his human nature does not know all things. He is 100% human. Humans don't know all things. I mean, Sometimes your mother-in-law might think she does, but don't know all things, you know. But, sorry, mother-in-laws. Um, so he's telling the truth. But simultaneously to this, ready? Simultaneously to this, Jesus knows all things. All things, in a moment, in an instant. It's the reality that while he was asleep on that pillow, while the storm is raging, yeah, he wakes up and he calms the storm. But while he was asleep, was he still holding the world together by the power of his word? The answer must be yes. It must be yes, because if it's no longer yes, then Jesus has ceased to be the second person of the Trinity, and everything has fallen apart. He is no longer God. He didn't put some of it aside. They're both true simultaneously, which is why Jesus is not lying when he says... The son does not know, only the father. Because in a very real sense, and this is the moment where he gets, poof, is that it's true that he does not know, and yet it is true that the Christ knew. He did not know, and he knew. This is the mystery of our faith. <laughs> but it's not... If you think about it, one of the ways, and this is uh, Wayne Grudem helped me a little bit here. He said, think about it this way. Those of you who've run a race before or competed in anything that's requiring physical activity, if you compete in a race, you find yourself, especially as you get towards the end of a race, with your body telling you, stop. Your lungs, your arms, your legs is saying, stop. Like, I'm worn out. I'm experiencing pain. Stop. And yet at the same time, there's something inside of you that goes, come on. Come on, we're almost there, right? That's urging you forward. Now, you're not schizophrenic, right? I mean, not very schizophrenic, right? I mean, if that can be true in just our simple internal world, 
How much more could that be true for the eternal son of God, fully man, fully God? Here's the thing. For most of us, we find ourselves with skepticism because we're like, I, because I can't understand this, I don't see how it could possibly be true. And instead, the reality is, I can't understand this, is actually the statement of appropriate humility. We don't totally understand this. But when held together in the right tension, it gives us a savior worth worshiping. It also gives us a savior worth contemplating in a way that yields worship. What Steve talked about last week, about having, having, a, having a savior who is at the right hand, who knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. At the same time, to look at, this, to look at Christ on the cross where, where we experience both of his natures, on the cross receiving the full wrath of God. This may sound like a silly, a silly illustration, but um, a couple weeks ago, I was talking about this with my friend Nate Shattuck, and, and he used an illustration. So I actually looked it up a couple weeks ago uh, of, for those of you who've seen the Godzilla movie, I know this, this is not heretical, I promise, but he talked about trying to understand what was it like for the wrath of God to be poured out on Jesus? We, it's just, I, it's like one of those, like, I can't, I mean, was he mad? A little, big mad? Like, ah, how, how do I get my hands around it, right? And in, in, the, in this particular clip, it's towards the end, the big battle between the one monster and Godzilla, which, aren't they both monsters? Anyway, um, but this is how he defeats the one. He actually grabs him by its mouth. He opens his mouth and he just shoots fire straight down inside of it. I mean, it literally just lights up the entire other monster and kills him. And he said, he's like, honestly, that's the best visual depiction I can think of, of what it was like for the wrath of God to come down. The wrath of God could never have come down on a, on a human nature. No human could have sustained the wrath of God. None. Jesus had to be God. He had to be God to sustain the magnitude of the eternal wrath of God upon him. There was no other option. And he did. And he died. God did not die. That's heresy. God does not die. The Christ died. And in that way, and Grudem talks about that, in that way, the divine nature of God experienced something of death. Though did not die. Still holding all things together. Just as he is today. You have a savior who is God and who is man. And he's worthy of worship. Most of the week what I've been wrestling with is like, okay, what's the practical implication of this? Like, let's get down to the nitty gritty of like, how does this affect you as you go home to your kids and your, your, your backyard that needs to be mowed? Like, let me give you something that's super practical that you can walk out and be like, yes, because God, Jesus is God. And I mean, I was talking with Clark and Mike this week and I'm like, man, this is a hard sermon. What, what's, the, what's the takeaway? What's the go away? And, and all I kept thinking about was the reality that because Jesus is God, the one who spun the world into being, that holds all the molecules together, that as he speaks, made things, that God came for you. Like the fact that Jesus is God means that God came for you. Not just a man, I don't know if, how much God-man you have in your system, but God came for you. And all that we're left with is wonder. 
as to not only what and how that manifested itself, but frankly, there is no greater miracle in, the, in all of Scripture. The creation of the world is not so magnificent as it is that God, perfectly content in his oneness, in his trinity, delighted in all that he has, chose to become man. There is no more flabbergasting reality in all of Scripture, in all of the world. The resurrection pales in comparison to that. That God became man and is God. It's awe. Your application is, is, is you get to worship. You get to go, this is the kind of God who loves me and gave himself for me. You also get to have surety in knowing that when you sin and you go like, man, I don't know if my sin is too bad before God. You know that the eternal son of God, God the son, received the fullness of the weight of it. And then went through his entire being. And he died to be raised, which is what we celebrate in Easter. He is alive, and that life, because he was God, not just man, is the life that you have in you, the divine life of God in you, that he has given you through his spirit, and now you get to live that way. That, that's the story of the gospel. That's the magnitude of the power of the story of what Jesus came to do, did, accomplish for you, and now is coming back to make true again, soon, even now. Come, Lord Jesus. So that's what we celebrate. That's what we remember as we come to the table, even this morning is you come and you're not just, though you are, you're not just looking at the elements as just the body of Christ and his blood broken, though it, it is. It's understanding that the one who was in that body and in that, and that whose blood, that blood was coursing through was the eternal son of God and that he loves you. And that's why he became a man. So let me pray and then come forward and receive. Father, we... Um, we, we stumble at trying to understand you, and, um, and yet we long to. We, we want to see you as you really are. We want to um, like roll over on the palate of our heart the reality of who you are in your fullness. We want to see you, Lord, face to face. So I join Apostle John, even now, come, Lord Jesus. But as we wait, Lord, I ask that you would fill us with the fullness of who you are. You said that I'm, I'm with you even to the ends of the age. And as we take this meal, we take it as ones who are being reminded of what you've accomplished and what you've promised. So help that to sink down deep. Uh, so deep that it begins to affect every aspect of our life as we see you as eternal God the Son, and Christ our Savior. Lord, we, we're finite people, but we want to worship you as a great God. So we pray that we would do so by your grace and to your glory. Amen. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've claimed this God, this beautiful mystery of a God that has come for you, then this is your meal. It's your opportunity to remember to rejoice in him and to be, re to be refreshed in him. And if you don't know Christ, then I encourage you, grab one of those books I mentioned or, or investigate further. Who is this Jesus and what has he claimed and, and how do you know, how do you guys, how do some of you guys know for sure that you may know and have peace with God? So if you belong to Christ, come forward, receive the body and blood of Christ for you.